Great. Well, if you have a Bible handy, why don't you grab uh, the book of Nehemiah and turn to chapter 4. We're going to do the whole thing today. So for those of you who are just picking up with us now, uh, we have been, as a church, making our way through the book of Nehemiah. It's been wonderful. It's a book about rebuilding. It's a very practical and encouraging part of God's Word. Uh, We've we've liked to have the joke that whenever you mention that you're going to preach through the book of Nehemiah to church, people sort of reflexively kind of defend their wallets, thinking that we're about to do some kind of building project. But it's not happening. We are the first church in history to preach through Nehemiah without an ulterior motive. So we've been reading along and we've been seeing a first-hand account written by Nehemiah himself of how God has moved in history to re-establish his people in the Holy Land. Uh, The events that are taking place in this story are preparing the soil for the times of Jesus when Jesus would be born in Nazareth, um, sorry, when when Jesus would be born in in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy and in making way for the cross. Now, as we read through this book, there's continually two sources of encouragement that we need to keep our eyes open for if we're going to teach you how to make the best out of biblical narratives. Um, The two sources of encouragement is the first, as we read, the trick is to keep your eyes open to see what it is that the Lord is doing in this story. We're supposed to watch as he moves surprisingly and powerfully, and there we learn who he is and how he acts. And there's a lot of encouragement to be found there as we watch God act in the story of Nehemiah. Turns out that ours is a God who keeps covenant with his people. Ours is a God whose patience survives generations. And uh, he is also a God whose authority cannot be defeated even by the most powerful nation on earth. That's worth remembering. And then the second thing that we're to do here as we read the book of Nehemiah is to watch the people who love the Lord, those champions of the faith who've gone before us, And we can learn from their example of courageous faith what a life lived for God can look like. We should be learning as we watch Nehemiah and the people around him that by God's grace, it can be done. God can use us. God really can use you to accomplish his will today in just the same way as he did them. And so as we watch them, that should be stirring in us a kind of a boldness to trust God and to step out in faith. Which brings us to a great segue into today's passage, um, which I think in some ways is here to help prevent a misunderstanding of what I've just said, which is this. With all this talk of rebuilding, with all this talk of God's victory, with all this talk of boldness, I suppose you could get the impression that what we are selling is a kind of a, a, a naive unrealistic optimism, which is at odds with your actual experience of life. It could seem like what we are saying is that if you step out in faith and trust God, everything will be roses. You will win every battle. Nothing will ever be hard. And that's not it. To which you say, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I thought it was just me, right? No, it's all of us. We, what we are saying is that the God we serve and his purposes are so powerful that even if they destroy us, he still wins. 
He will use it all. He will use every defeat, every victory, every hill, every valley. His purposes are so powerful that even if they fight and destroy us, he still wins. That's the kind of boldness that we can have in Jesus. We see this in the next part of the story, which is all about opposition. All about opposition. Mike touched on this, uh, not, I think not last week, but the week before. It might have been last week. Um, but we're going to sit here today. It turns out that the work of God in this world is opposed. And so anybody who follows him will experience this opposition. Uh, in chapter 2, the back end of chapter 2, we were introduced to a few voices of opposition who are relevant to today's passage as well. Some of the opposition to Nehemiah's plans to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem had come from within. There were Jews in the land who opposed Nehemiah's actions and attempt to rebuild. To them, what he was doing was too risky. They worried it would serve as a provocation to the other more established peoples in the area. They thought Nehemiah was going to get them all killed. And so, their own people were telling them, don't do this thing. It's a voice of opposition. The other one we heard about was uh, two, two people who were named specifically, two characters who will come up again. Sanballat the Horonite, who is the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant. It seems like it's his, his offsider. And the Ammonites were historically one of Israel's main rivals in the region. And we've heard of the Sumerians. By the time of Jesus, we know that the differences between the Jews and the Sumerians was well and truly established. Well, those two characters show up here again in chapter 4. So why don't we have a read? It says, Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, almost certainly on Facebook. Silly wall. I could build a better one. One star. That'll teach them. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? The previous walls had been knocked down and burnt. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. See, after that comment, um, somebody is going to need to rush Nehemiah to hospital because that is what we call a sick burn. <laughs> I, like, I like to picture that Sam Ballot and Tobiah are kind of like, like a, bit, a bit like a crew who are like kind of backing each other up while all of this sassing is going on. Like, there's one sitting there throwing shade and the other one's like, yeah, oh, snap. And that's, that's kind of what we just read. Turns out that started in Samaria in a couple of centuries BC. Okay, then we get a bit, uh, a bit here after this kind of vocal opposition is beginning. The next couple of verses for us is kind of like a, a pause in the story. And for two verses, we hear Nehemiah's prayer against the Samarians. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. 
Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And then the next bit, we get this growing sense of the escalation that's, head, that's going on as these walls start to rise. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Senballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, that's the holes in the wall that were being filled in, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Now, maybe you wouldn't have thought of this when we began to read the story, but as the walls of Jerusalem are slowly being rebuilt, as the Jews are doing this thing to get themselves reestablished in Jerusalem, it turns out that what they're doing really is dangerous. There really are people who do not want them to do this, more than one kind of person who doesn't want them to do this. And, and there, is a, there is a battle on the cards. There's, this, this, is, this, is, this could start a war kind of stuff. The next three verses give us what I could summarize as the three forms of discouragement that would have been in the hearts and minds of every single one of those people contributing to the building of the wall. Verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. In Judah, it was said, Judah is the region where Jerusalem is of Israel. Verse 11, our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And then in verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. What's going on there? Well, in verse 10, what we see is that all of this kind of mounting tension, all of this building opposition has gotten into the heads of the people doing the work. And they have become discouraged. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Can you relate to that kind of discouragement? That kind of demoralized, negative self-talk that can see the problems and can't see the solutions. Sometimes when the opposition rises against God's will in our life, it can seem quite convincing in the moment. The people are demoralized. There is an internal voice of opposition. In verse 11, we hear the external voice of opposition, the very real threat coming from God's enemies. They can hear the voice of their opponents. They can see their actions. They're swinging between mocking them and threatening them. And they know that they are actively plotting an attack and looking for an opportunity. It turns out that when, <laughs> when God's plans are moving in this world, his enemies really do make plans to try and stop him. And in verse 12, the last kind of opposition, possibly the one that hurts the most, 
is coming from the other Jews. It seems that there are still some other Hebrews who are being the voice of no. It seems like what is happening here is that the friends and relatives of the ones doing the rebuilding of the wall uh, (laughs) know that their loved ones are in danger and are trying to talk them out of it. Come, come home, stop, this is silly. Like, it was noble of you to try, give up. Internal discouragement, the opposition of their enemies, the naysaying within their own community. Here's the thing about studying history. We know the end before we even begin reading. We, we know that Nehemiah and, and a lot of them were, were successful, that the walls were rebuilt, that Jerusalem survived. But imagine watching all of this play out in real time before we knew the outcome. When success seemed far from certain. Can you imagine that this situation was properly distressing? They were up against it. And many of them had come to the conclusion, we are going to lose. This is not going to work. What they were doing was dangerous and frightening work. And at some point, somewhere near the beginning to halfway along, it didn't look good. It didn't look like they were going to make it. If you were in that situation, which one of those voices of opposition do you think would hurt you the most? Threats and intimidation, internal discouragement, friendly fire. None of them are good. Can we relate to this? Do you know what it's like to look at the idea of a life lived for God and to know what you need to do next in order to follow him and for it to just seem impossible? That's what this book is written for. Well, the rest of the chapter describes how despite all of that, the plan went ahead and by the end of this chapter, the the tide has turned. And what we read is, is great. It's stirring stuff. It's about as, as, about as encouraging as the Bible gets. It starts with like a Hollywood-style hero speech from Nehemiah and then describes an incredibly wise plan, starting in verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, it says, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose... And said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, Half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built 
the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us. There, our God will fight for us. And so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. And so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Isn't that the best? I love this. Fun fact from history, uh, Charles Spurgeon's newsletter was named after this. It's called The Sword and the Trowel, The Sword and the Shovel, because that imagery <laughs> of going to work with one hand dedicated to the battle of God's kingdom and the other dedicated to fruitful labor, bringing about the, the ordinary blessing to the place where you live, just getting life done, is a wonderful summary of the Christian life, isn't it? It's stirring stuff. Part soldier, part worker, all faithful. Sometimes people complain that church culture can be a bit too feminized. Boys, here we are. This is, this is our magic moment, right? This is fire. We get to live life with Jesus like this. Girls, it applies to you too, but you know what I'm saying. The whole point of this is that both of those hands are dedicated to the service of God. Do you understand? The hand that is holding the sword, ready to fight the good fight. The hand that is holding the shovel, ready to build the wall. Both of those are part of a life lived for God. There is so much in there. How do we bring some conclusions out of this? Let me do it by giving you three thoughts. First is this. This gives us some understanding. Some understanding. It turns out that opposition is the norm for God's people in this world. Opposition is the norm for God's people in this world. It turns out that every great move of God in history, the ones we know so well, came in the midst of opposition. Moses had Pharaoh, didn't he? David had Saul. And let's chuck in Goliath for good measure. Isaiah had Ahaz. Jesus had the scribes and the Pharisees. Any time anybody in history has set out to follow the Lord in anything, opposition has followed in the wake of that decision. That's how it has always been. And that includes you. Be that somebody considering whether or not to follow God for the first time, or somebody choosing to mature and to grow in holiness of living, or someone making plans to serve God practically in his kingdom work, all of these things, in all of these things, you will experience opposition. The voice of no will rise against you in some way, from within, from without, 
and even in Friendly Fire. There is a whole extra sermon that I could do in here about knowing the difference between whether or not you are embarking out on God's will or your own. It's an important sermon. I'm not going to preach it. The short version is it's got a lot to do with the Bible being central. Everything outside of that we hold a bit more loosely. But if you trust God by assuming that the Bible is true and then doing what it says and believing what it says, this is going to happen to you. I cannot stress this enough. For example, when helping people to prepare for baptism here, which is a thing that Jesus has told us to do in the Bible, so we know it is God's will for our life, we have now, well, I at least have made it a habit to warn them about this principle because I've just seen it too many times. It's no longer surprising. Too frequently to be a coincidence. There is a sense where baptism is a strength add to your faith. It's a way of moving towards Jesus, experiencing his blessing. It's absolutely wonderful. But at the same time, almost invariably, when people step out in faith and take their faith public in that way, there seems to be an immediate and sudden rise in temptations and distractions. Can anyone relate? The, the things that happen are so, are so common that I can, I, I can name them as stereotypes. I'd like to get baptized. And all of a sudden, an old flame reaches out, out of the blue, and wants to get back together. Someone who doesn't love the Lord. There is a, a dramatic blow-up or conflict in the family that is distracting and stressful. All of a sudden, the boss at work wants me to work every Sunday for the next two years. Some close friend gets really offended. The relationship breaks down because I want to live for Christ. These things happen again and again and again and again. And this makes sense when you understand the, the world that we live in, in light of what the Bible has to say about it. In the grand sweep from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells us about this world that we live in, where it came from, why it is the way that it is, and where it is going. In the Bible's big story, we see that God made this world, and in the beginning, he described it as very good. However, ever since Adam and Eve, as the custodians of creation, listened to the devil and rebelled against him, they and the creation itself were cursed. There is a fall that has occurred. In a sense, this world has been cut off from God. It's not that he's absent, but it's certainly not like it was. You and I, we live in a corrupted world. It's still under the curse. And what is more, the Bible describes that this cursed world has a spiritual, air quotes, ruler. Not in the sense that he is God's equal. Not in the sense that God is afraid of him. But there is most definitely a spiritual power at work in this world who is hostile to God. And God and his wisdom for reasons known to him, and I look forward to the explanation, has allowed that to be so for a time. That's not the end of the story. No, the end of the story is that God in Jesus is doing something about that curse, about that fall. We have a promise. He is making all things new. 
He has a plan which has been launched in the cross and the resurrection of the Christ, which has now made the outcome certain. The battle belongs to the Lord, and we know that one day in the future, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, free from the curse, free from the fall, and free from the devil. That's coming. On that day, the enemies of God will be bound and judged and put away forever. Together with Jesus, we heard in Romans, didn't we? That we will one day trample the devil underfoot. But for now, you and I, we live in the time between the two comings of Jesus. Between the cross and the culmination of history. The Apostle Paul summarized it in Ephesians 6. He told us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is the battle that our lives take place in. We live in a fallen world which is spiritually opposed to our God. But it is also a world which has been won and is being redeemed. Though that process is not finished yet. It's in process. And so as Christians, we know that we are on the winning side and our lives are part of that battle. And a battle it is. And it feels like a battle. Every time the kingdom of God takes a step forwards, we feel the opposition. It comes at us. It is not possible in a world like this to step out in faith and to follow Jesus without experiencing that opposition. In one sense, this should be encouraging, shouldn't it? It should be encouraging because it says that opposition doesn't automatically mean that anything has gone wrong. Does it feel hard? That's okay. It usually does. Those three voices of discouragement, do you realize, are all part of the battle. They are all the spiritual smokescreen designed to prevent us from trying, designed to get our eyes off the promises of God, off the person of God, off the victory of God, and onto all the things which we cannot do. I have to admit that this is actually what spoke to me this week. I had that moment of realization that in some ways those voices of discouragement were getting to me. And I needed to take my eyes off the problems and put my eyes back on the Lord, who has promised. Be ready for these things. Know that they will be there and don't lose heart. See them for what they are. And keep your eyes fixed on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Next in this story, what we have to see is that God is at work. We need to see God in this passage, like we always do in the whole book. And for Nehemiah, there is a direct connection between his view of God and his courageous faith. Doesn't he have a courageous faith? Isn't it inspiring? Where does it come from? It comes 
from his view of who God is. Remember his speech. Do not be afraid of them. Why not? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. There is a connection between the fight and the remembering. Later on in verse 20, he says this. Our God will fight for us. If he sincerely believed this, it's not too difficult to imagine that that was a source of encouragement to him, don't you think? When the opposition became real. You can tell that these are not just words that he's saying. This is not some political speech to stir up support. This is the content of his faith. This is who he knows God to be. Where does that come from? Well, Nehemiah knows God's promises. And he is aware that God has been keeping them for generations, more than the span of a single lifetime. He has been watching, even within his own lifetime, as God has been moving surprisingly and miraculously to get things along this far, as difficult as they've been. There is a direct connection between our awareness of God's character and the way in which we live. And in this instance, it is understanding what God is at work to do in the world. That's what's driving Nehemiah. It's the same thing that drove David before Goliath, who came to the conclusion that the battle belongs to the Lord because he knew that God would preserve his people. Do you understand that? That, that doesn't mean we will never suffer setbacks or defeats. Martyrs are a thing. But it means that no matter what happens, God wins. No matter what happens, God wins. This God is moving nations around in order to work out his will. This God is, in his infinite wisdom and power, manipulating the most powerful nation on earth in order to accomplish his will. Persia, it turns out, is part of God's plan. It is the king of Persia who is up until this point in the story paying for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and providing some degree of protection to Nehemiah, at least from the Persian Empire end of things. Brothers and sisters, that means that all of the promises of Jesus are true here today. The same God who bound himself to his covenant people then has bound himself to us today. And he is here and he is alive and he is well and he is building his kingdom. He has people in this city and he is gathering them together and they will come so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. That is what he is going to do here. Do you feel like things are stacked against us when I promise a thing like that? Hear Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth 
set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Isn't that eerily similar to what we've just been reading in Nehemiah? How does God respond? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Love it. What is, what is God's response to the opposition of this world against us? He finds it amusing. <laughs> to him, the strongest efforts of this fallen world to prevent his kingdom from coming to being are a bit like when my three-year-old wants to fight me. It's cute. I quite enjoy it. It's not particularly dangerous for me. Every now and then it hurts a little bit. It's all fun and games until I storm off crying to my room because she wasn't playing by the rules. No, that never happens. Never happens. Remember who God is. Remember who God is. And let that give you courage. The last thing we see here is an example of faith at work. We've noticed the principle of opposition. We've noticed the activity of God and the character of God. Now notice the people of faith. How have they conducted themselves here in a way that is worth emulating? I've got three things on this next slide, but I've added one since, so it's not your fault. Um, Notice these things that we see in their lives. From Nehemiah, we see prayer, don't we? I can't, I can't say that strongly enough. About every couple of verses, Nehemiah is praying again in this story. And that's been true since chapter 1. But not only do we see prayer, prayer, we see planning. There is a strategy coming here from Nehemiah and his mates. The, the, the fact that the battle belongs to the Lord hasn't stopped them from having swords, for example, and having guards. We see wisdom. They are being shrewd. And the one which I added was that we see them laboring. Their work, this is hard yakka. <laughs> what was that last verse? It turns out that the rebuilding of Jerusalem was a bit stinky. They're not taking their clothes off. Why is that? Because they're dressed for battle, ready to go 24-7. How long does it take to build a wall? It's not days. Like, we're, not, we're not talking about this kind of wall. We're talking about the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They're kind of still there. Do you know what I mean? They worked hard. They worked with wisdom. They worked with foresight. And they worked prayerfully. Isn't that wonderful? And so should we. It turns out that practical, wise living is not incompatible with faith and prayer. Do we realize that? Sometimes I think we play those two things against each other. If we're going to have faith, God's going to do the thing. Yes, he's going to do the thing. Most of the time, he does it through us, and he expects us to live wise lives. If you and I are going to be a part of what it is that the Lord is going to do in our time, one healthy part of that is going to be us looking with wisdom and strategy at how the job can be done. And that is going to be absolutely combined with, it is going to go hand in hand with a life of prayerful dependence. 
if we are neglecting either of those things, we haven't understood this yet. Look at your own life and what do you see? Do you continually call on the name of the Lord to accomplish his will and to bless our endeavors? Likewise, do you see yourself using the mind and the heart which God gave you to plan to be useful in his kingdom? Do we do that together? Do we cooperate as we serve the Lord? We have an example to follow. This is how the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. With faith and courage, with blood, sweat and tears, all working together. And as we read that, can you not just help but get just a little bit excited? As you think about what it is that Jesus is doing here today and what it might mean for my life to be a part of that story. It seems hard now. There's so many things about it that seem unlikely, but don't we look forward to a future generation hearing about our faith and writing it off as simple because the outcome looked so certain from their point of view. Let's pray. Our Father, as we read this, we can relate. We can relate to their experience of discouragement. Life with you is not always easy, and it really does feel like we are living in an age of decline, especially for the faith. Something in us that wonders our God. How long until this building is yet another childcare center? What is the world our children going to grow up in going to look like? Will there be faith? Will there be witness? Will there be a church? We hear it. We hear it all the time. We hear the statistics boldly proclaimed. The rise of the nuns, they say not the Catholic ones, the ones who have no faith. They tell us that's the future. That's what the world is going to look like. That we have outgrown our need for you. That faith will pass away. We hear the accusations and the threats of those who hate you and hate your ways, who tell us that if we ever stick our head above the wall and stand on your truth as true, that they will cut us down. And so we'd better stay hidden. And we'd better stay quiet. We'd better stay compliant. We hear the grumblings of our brothers and sisters, those who should be our strength, who say it's too hard and it can't be done. And we're foolish to try. And we should just come home. We relate to that, Lord, because all of that is still a part of your world. From where we are standing, the idea that, 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 that the tide would turn, that the world would change, that this nation 
would go from hostile to you to being overwhelmingly in love with you. It seems unlikely, if not impossible. Sometimes even our own theology can work against us because we've read Revelation. We know it gets bad before it gets better. We think to ourselves, that's us. We know for certain that we are going to live through an eternal age of decline and we will never in our lifetime see the dawning of the Son of Hope. We write you off before we've even tried. Our Father, rescue us from that. Lord, while it is true that there are many battles along the way and that we will not stand in glorious victory on every battlefield ever, help us to know in our heart of hearts who you are. Lift our eyes up today, our Lord. Remind us that you are the great and awesome God. That your plans will not be thwarted. That if you can move Babylon and Assyria and Persia, you can move today. Governors and kings and judges do not hold authority over you. Bosses and lecturers do not hold authority over you. Not even friends and family and parents hold authority over you. Help us to see you and to believe that you can change it. That you can rescue. That you can redeem. That you can revive. And in faith, would we today begin to long for, yearn for, pray for, plan for, and work towards that day? Today, Lord, while the wall is not yet half built, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you in such a way that the jeers and the taunts and the threats lose their power. To move us. Help us to stand confidently that your promises are sure, that your truth is true, and that your goodness is good. Lord, would all of this move me? I offer you my life in your service. Take it. And put it to work, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.